0: The Teamwork Arts podcast, ladies and gentlemen, this is where we go um, uh, behind the thoughts uh, of those who create the arts, the thoughts that animate the actions of those who create the art. And uh, today, uh, we have a man who's who's made words and art. (laughs) I think that's a very, if I were to try and Describe what you do. Uh, one, I would fail miserably, sir. And two, I think the whole podcast would be about what you do. Everything from your diplomatic career to your 23, is it now? Uh, 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 the, the list of, of books that you've uh, written um, uh, to those wonderful tweets and the lessons that we all get in trying to show off the English language. It's, it's absolutely wonderful. But
1: and you very graciously haven't mentioned my typos. <laughs> absolutely Far too many, thanks to my haste
0: in. Uh, but it's actually that uh, people have uh, uh, come to depend on your linguistic skills so much that they believe the typos are the real thing. I know, <laughs> I've heard, I've heard. And after all, we are living in a post truth world, aren't we? A <laughs> <laughs> number of hours people have had to waste looking up
1: uh, yes. <laughs> dictionaries for words that are actually
0: yes, are typos. Okay. Anyway, there we are. <laughs> not, that, uh, not that they weren't earlier, but uh, uh, words are increasingly being weaponized to subserve an agenda, sir. And uh, you have been a merchant of words for a very, very long time. What are your views on that, sir?
1: Never word for, words for their own <coughs> sake, sir. For me, I think words matter as vehicles for ideas. Ideas, emotions, thoughts, proposals, whatever it is, words must convey something. I, I, I enjoy uh, the beauty of words. I enjoy style. I enjoy wit. But um, there's always got to be content allied to them. And I, I wouldn't ever consider myself interested, for example, in kind of abstract... Uh, using of words, a way in which an abstract painter might splash colors onto a canvas. I think that words may have beauty, but the beauty only has meaning when it is seeking to convey something. And to me, therefore, words have always been an instrument. They're a source of joy. Why shouldn't an instrument be a source of joy? Sure. You know, a chair is an instrument for you to sit on, but it can be a beautifully designed chair. It can be an uncomfortable, badly made, you know, <laughs> short legged place to be uh, plumped in. So ultimately, words can, it seems to me, uh, be beautiful in themselves, but only as much, in as much as they're effective to convey an idea, a thought, whatever it may be. And I've always tried to see words that way, to use them that way. But I've also believed that the telling of a tale is as important as the tale itself. And therefore, I don't believe in the content is king kind of thing. Yes, content is important. But if you have very important content expressed in clunky or bad language, then you've actually undermined
0: your content as well. I think also the seduction of ideas is is increasingly being used again as an agenda. Everything, everything has probably been, uh, you know, directed towards a certain thought. and of course, as you said, the importance of words, uh, words make up information and information makes up knowledge. Hmm. knowledge information is, is, is increasingly passive because we find it everywhere. Yeah. Knowledge, is it still remains an active pursuit, does it not? And increasingly that line is being blurred, which probably might be a little bit
1: of a threat to, to ideas. You remember it's famous lines about where is that uh, knowledge that has been lost in information, where is the wisdom that has been lost in knowledge, we've forgotten wisdom as well. Because ultimately, um, information is absolutely proliferating. Uh, what is worse is you don't really know what's authentic information, what is not, what is fake news, what is not, and so on. And on top of that, of course, you do have the entire issue of, of, of uh, how to use whatever information required in a way that actually contributes to the sum total of human knowledge and human advancement. So that's where I think we will always, thank God, need teachers, guides, <laughs> mentors, gurus, to help steer us through these uh, increasingly dense jungles of information and misinformation into something of a clearing that you might call knowledge, and then from there into the oasis of wisdom.
0: <laughs> so it's, uh, it's,
1: a- it's, it's a process we we'll all have to go through in this uh, in this internet era,
0: the way you, uh, the storyteller in you is uh, has just transported me onto a beach with the uh, with, with the with the nice warm breeze of uh, of uh, of,
1: uh, of knowledge, yeah, of joy, wisdom, wisdom of all of idea. that. Yeah. But
0: <laughs> it's very difficult to ask you questions because you just take us off. But um, uh, it's also increasingly that uh, we are becoming a society of the ors rather than the ands. At one point of time, we could be this and that. Uh, increasingly we are being told that uh, we can be this or that and we're being told as well, right?
1: I think that varies from field to field. I find myself in politics where indeed the binaries, the polarization, the the sort of construction of opposites has now reached in our country an extreme level where you're quite right. There is no question of being, for example, shall we say financially uh, a little bit right of center and socially left of center. You know, there's this entire... Um, uh, expectation that you are labeled either a a libtard or (laughs) or uh, what is it, a secular or whatever. Um, And you can't, for example, be seen as a nuanced human being who has a number of responses to the world, some of which may actually fall into a different category from others. So uh, I'm somebody who believes very strongly that diversity is fundamental to what India is all about. I completely reject the bigotry of those who would divide this country into Hindus and Muslims and, and promote these uh, polarizing binaries, uh, animated as they are by really sort of uh, ahistorical chips on the shoulder. But having said that, it doesn't necessarily mean that everything else uh, about that particular party or the individuals in that party needs to be rejected. It may be, for example, that some of their economic or welfare measures are worth applauding. Um, but. How do you accept this kind of complexity, unless you're willing to give yourself the time to do it? And indeed, as you've rightly said, to find the words to do it. Um, and I am this, and I am that is actually a very useful conjunction um, to say that you have to be either this or that. Remember George Bush's line about you're either with us or against us. It is absolutely. There's a story that Nehru was asked was told the same thing by the American Secretary of State in the Eisenhower era in the 1950s, John Foster Dulles said, know, Are you with us or against us? And Nehru replied, Yes. I'm with you when I agree with you, I'm against you when I disagree with you. I have the right to decide which I am, depending on the situation.
0: Also, the importance of just one word. Yeah. <laughs> that, uh, you, uh, you know, we, we don't weigh them enough, do we? That's right. Uh, they've become a little lighter. But um, uh, there is the telling of the tale, and then there's the listening of the tale. Uh, somebody um, uh, told me, and that has stayed with me for a very long time, which is that we're increasingly living in an age when we're not listening, we're waiting. Uh, listening is important, isn't it? And and that seems to have been something that's receding into the background a little. Would you agree? Yeah. Oh, very
1: much so. In fact, listening is important, and then hearing is even more important,
0: <laughs> because uh, there are yeah. many
1: people who listen, yeah. allow what you're saying to wash over them, and then come back reiterating everything they believe in without actually having paid attention to what you've said. Sure. So listening is only part of the challenge. Hearing. I mean, to to say that I've heard you, in other words, I've I've understood your point. I've absorbed it. I may still disagree, uh, but I've at least taken what your convictions are into account before I disagree. So, that idea is sadly not always present.
0: You're also uh, uh, straddling two words. I mean, uh, a literator, I mean, 23 books is not a small uh, repertoire to carry. Um, uh, does, does the responsibility of art sometimes weigh heavy on you with your responsibilities as a politician?
1: No, one has had to choose, I'm afraid, Sathak. I mean, I, I think for quite some time now, as I've first risen in the U.N. hierarchy and then subsequently got deeply immersed in Indian politics. Um, I've had to realize that that comes first and the writing is always when possible. Now, thanks to COVID, it was suddenly more possible than not, but, uh, but most of the time uh, it's a struggle. And even now that COVID has gradually been easing and the demands on one's uh, normal, quote unquote, professional life uh, have increased. Um, I found that it's a real struggle to find both the time and the energy and equally important the space inside your head to create something different. And, and as a result, uh, for the first time in ages, I'm seriously behind on a on a book deadline, uh, which unfortunately uh, may, may well end up being missed altogether. Uh, but at the same time, this is the kind of life I've chosen to lead. Um, I remember there, were, there was a famous novelist in America, again, going back to the 50s, who was a famous corporate lawyer and right, called Auchincloss, uh, Hugh Auchincloss. And apparently, after having you know written a few successful bestsellers while still practicing law, uh, somebody said, my gosh, you'd do so much better if you could be full-time. And he took leave of absence from his law firm uh, to work on a book. And then... Uh, a year later or so, he was right back at the law firm. People said, "What happened?" And he said, "I wasn't writing any more when I had nothing else to do." So I thought, "I may as well, may as well at least earn a living and, uh, and continue my profession." So I've I've always been sort of you know worried about that kind of thing happening to me, and I've never taken the plunge into
0: full time writing. You know, it's fascinating the fact that uh, you're. <laughs> you are in a profession that causes discomfort on a daily basis, yeah. Um, and uh, you you sort of fall back on something that uh, is supposed to comfort, but also to cause discomfort, yeah. which is uh, which is art. Um, do you sometimes uh, feel yourself falling into a comfort zone where uh, where the discomfort takes a back seat as your responsibility as a writer? Uh, to no,
1: actually, my writings. If you go right back to my first novel onwards, yeah. i have always been about trying to provoke the reader into thinking for themselves. Sure. Um, the great thing the novel actually ends with, uh, with doubt and uncertainty. Absolutely, uh, uh, My novel showbiz is my novel riot where, where so many possibilities are explored and left to the reader to gauge I'm constantly trying to get the reader to think. And I, if there's any one thing that's common to my to my writings, it'd probably be that. But what has happened, I would admit, is that because of my work, my fiction has dropped off and... Whereas the I think four of my first six books were all fiction, um, all my subsequent 17 have been non-fiction. And why is that? Um, because uh, you know, I was talking about that space inside your head. You've really got to create with fiction an alternative universe. And you've got to populate it with people, characters, incidents, situations that are right. as real to you as what you're encountering in your daily life. Absolutely. Now, that's kind of a, a glass palace of illusion, as it were. But if your daily life keeps intruding on it, keeps interrupting it, keeps shattering uh, the palace, How often can you shatter glass before it becomes uh, unusable? And as a result, I've had my laptops over the years littered with incomplete manuscripts uh, with half begun uh, manuscripts of fiction, whereas nonfiction is interruptible. You know, we are all talking non-fiction all the time, I hope. Yes. Some of our politicians <laughs> are talking fiction <laughs> too. But, I mean, uh, but alternate universe is also, up is also there, with especially government propaganda. But anyway, uh, so what you write, let's say you're interrupted, you're going to go off, campaign for a state election, whatever, three weeks, you're gone. You come back, you've completely been in a different world. But you can read what you've written up to that point. And immediately your mind will click into your process of thought and what you are thinking, what your argument was going to be, and you can pick up and keep writing. At least that's what I found. So I've, I've, I found that while leading an interruptible life, it was possible for me to create these uh, non-fiction books. Whereas I think fiction would have been very difficult at this time. Now, i joked that, and I'm, this is a joke that I better stop cracking because it may turn <laughs> out to be true, that, uh, That uh, one day the voters may choose to return me to the world of literature. (laughs) But uh, but this is why every time I publish a book and my I have loyal readers from around the country and the world who write to me saying, when is your next novel coming? And I have to look very abashed and say, I don't know. The truth is, this is why I've not been able to produce one. Maybe one day. (laughs)
0: <laughs> yeah. Now that you do talk about elections, uh, you know, this has been something that uh, that I wanted to ask you if I ever got the opportunity and I'm honored that I've gotten the opportunity. The, the organizations that you work for and the organizations that you work for... Um, are being increasingly brought into question the un's uh, toothlessness um, you know uh, uh, the the opposition space being ceded these are things that are increasingly uh, coming into question yes. and um, uh, you know eloquence can only serve a purpose um, and and you are being increasingly asked because uh, you have been articulate about uh, the defense of probably both. Uh, is it becoming, is the shield tracking a little? or How's the armor like?
1: <laughs> well, on the UN, I, I still stand by what I say. though I do feel a bit of despair about what's going on right now. Um, for the last, and I left the UN, I'm embarrassed to admit, now 15 years ago. But um, but in these 15 years, we've seen the UN being marginalized, first, you know, used uh, when it came to things like authorizing uh, de facto regime change in Libya and so on, which was never meant to be part of the the UN resolution and mandate. Uh, We've seen it relatively irrelevant when places like Syria were being bombed Um, and then on Ukraine right now you're seeing a situation where uh, the UN is not only unable to act on the Security Council because one of the permanent members is directly involved and has a veto but also when the Secretary General has not been at all visible in attempting any sort of peacemaking diplomacy. I mean, I was interested to see the Israeli Prime Minister flying to Moscow on an errand of peace, uh, which uh, presumably was infructuous. We haven't heard any good news out of it. But the fact is that uh, that should have been the UN Secretary General. So I don't quite know um, uh, what to say. Other than that, uh, I still feel for all its flaws, it's the only UN we've got. And we need to make sure that um, it's given a chance with reform to improve. Um, but but I would much have a world with a much rather have a world with a flawed UN in it than a world with no UN in it.
0: You are a writer, and at one point of time uh, you were a serious contender for uh, the UN Secretary General post as well. Um, what would uh, a hypothetical situation? Had you been Secretary General right now, uh, this would have been probably uh, it, it's a world-changing crisis actually. So uh, uh, have you ever thought of that?
1: Well, no, if, to begin with, if I had been Secretary General, my time would have been over in 2016. So I would have been oh, six years away from this problem as Ban Ki-moon is today. But the fact is that um, uh, it, is, it is undoubtedly unwise when you're not in a particular position to talk about what you would have done. First of all, because you don't have access to all the information that the person in that position does. A Secretary General has direct one-on-one face-to-face contact with many of the principals. Things may have been said privately that are not known to the world information may have been exchanged confidentially that you and i don't know so i think anyone who sits here and says i would have done this or that is being a fool because that person is saying that without benefit to that inside track but as i say from the outside one of the things one would have hoped to have seen happening is for the secretary general to take an initiative i was with kofi annan in his immediate office when um the americans had decided to bomb baghdad in 98 and he just on his own initiative Announced that he was going to travel to Baghdad and try and get Saddam Hussein to climb down from the position he'd taken that had led to the threatened bombing, which was denial of of inspections. And I must say, that was an act of immediate uh, success, but also great courage and wisdom, because uh, it was not something that the West was happy about. The Americans would probably have benefited politically from dropping some bombs more than from watching this UN Secretary General going off to Baghdad. But he essentially was able to cock a snook at both the and all five of the, of the major powers, while at the same time going out to this country and giving them a, a branch down which to climb. And they did. And, and and at least, you know, in the end, for other reasons, uh, the, the peace that Kofi bought with his trip uh, only lasted six or nine months. And then the bombing started anyway. But the reason I say that he uh, distinguished himself from that role, this is one of the many things he did, which use the sort of moral authority that comes with being the Secretary-General of the UN in ways that we have not seen being used since his time.
0: There's also, uh, you know, words like uh, wisdom, uh, branch climb down on moral authority. Uh, these are also words that are being increasingly used for the for the opposition space in the country right now. Uh, what are your views on that? Now,
1: I would say that we have a, a genuine challenge uh, in that a lot of thoughtful people uh, are undoubtedly rejecting the politics of polarization, of bigotry, of communal division, that seem to be essential uh, for the USP of the ruling party. Um, The ruling party nonetheless keeps winning elections, perhaps as people say, because of a a number of sort of micro-welfare projects, um, which certainly uh, people uh, seem to think have been uh, implemented sincerely and effectively, and appreciate that. In fact, we talked about or and. Uh, You know, you can be communal and be effective at building toilets and (laughs) and delivering gasoline. So so the fact is that the BJP has uh, certainly demonstrated with these five elections, whose results have just come in as you and I are speaking, uh, a capacity to um, convince voters that they are serving public interest. Uh, What surprises me is that, of course, at the same period, we also have record inflation, record unemployment, the worst unemployment ever recorded. In fact, we have uh, uh, memories of bodies being floated down the Ganga because of the horrendous mismanagement of the second wave of Covid last year. And yet people have allowed themselves to put those behind them. Do they say these are acts of God, but the toilet in my village or the gas cylinder in my kitchen is the act of Modi? I don't know. But the public clearly uh, has bought into the BJP's narrative. Where does the opposition stand in that? I mean, it seems to me we have a very, very positive story to tell. Because we have in many ways done far more for the aspirations of India during our last 10 years in office than the BJP has done in any of its eight. In fact, if you look at the way in which the economy was transformed, household incomes went up, uh, jobs proliferated, educational opportunities multiplied, industries came on stream. I go one after the other. Uh, there is an unrelieved... Uh, sort of list of, of, of you know, UPA1, NDA0 kind of thing on this, on this, all these years. And I think that's a story we can tell with pride. If people are sick and tired of hearing the usual divisions between us and the government, um, I think this is what we should talk about. Plus, you know, honestly, we have a lot of competent people on our benches who can go out and implement um, yeah. implement uh, the kinds of projects which, um, which uh, the, 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 if the BJP is, is doing well with some projects, No reason why we can't continue?
0: Uh, This is of course a subject that uh, I'm absolutely and completely incompetent for. You asked it. So so I'm not going to tread down that path at all. But I do know for a fact that art has uh, over uh, centuries played a very, very important part as uh, as a a vehicle for awareness, as a vehicle for dissent, as a vehicle for raising voices uh, that are usually not raised enough. Um, we, increasingly, we're seeing art being threatened. Would you agree uh, that, uh, I, I, and, and how important is art to uh, to the current scenario? Well, think you must
1: be aware of that uh, famous metaphor that art is like, you know, the canary that is put in a cage and sent down to the bottom of a mine shaft yeah. to see if there's enough oxygen there for, for it to be safe for the miners to go down. If the canary chokes to death or, or or is puffing for air when you bring the cage up, then it's not safe for the miners to go down. If the canary is still singing, as it were, the, canary, the miners can go. This is a, a classic technique that is used from the 18th century or 19th century onwards in various mines, coal mines and, yeah. and iron mines and so on. Now The thing is that art serves a purpose. You know, If the artists feel beleaguered and threatened and suffocated, then society is in trouble because the artists will feel it first before the rest of us get to experience it. And, and to my mind, that's a very useful metaphor to understand how important art is. We've seen some very courageous art coming out of repressed societies, uh, particularly East Europe during the Soviet era. Uh, there was some amazing subversive literature. Uh, you know, what was called Samizdat was going around in, in the Eastern uh, Bloc, a playwright like Václav Havel in, the Czech, uh, in Czechoslovakia as it was at the time, or Milan Kundera, uh, uh, Ismail Kadare in Albania. These are all people who were writing sometimes under the most incredible duress and sometimes in exile about conditions that were reflecting through their art the reality experienced by their countrymen and women. Now, these kinds of stories, um, I think, are, are amazingly reflective of what uh, ails a society. And I think when you, you find Indians starting to produce this kind of subversive literature, you may, on the one hand, say great for literature, but also say uh, worried about our society because they're sending the alarm bells that not all is well in our, in our
0: country. So you think there is hope in art?
1: Oh, of course. What else? Where is there greater hope than art? Art is the expression of the finest of human sensitivities, sensibilities, and, 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 um, uh, and concerns. And at the same time, it, it taps into that most precious and indefinable part of our being, our imaginations. So surely, uh, that's what art has to offer us all, and which we honestly have to, uh, have to appreciate. I'm so grateful that a place like JLF has all the arts on display, including music. And of course, uh, it's not just books, it's also ideas. It's uh, usually the ideas are being discussed by people who have written books, which is good Uh, writers need platforms, but also sometimes by people who are just practitioners of these various things. So a very interesting um, opportunities, it seems to me, to engage with the things that matter in the world and art, literature, poetry, music, all of this has an indispensable role to play in helping
0: illuminate (laughs) some corners of the human condition that we may not be fully aware of. Absolutely. And I think sometimes we have to hang on by our fingernails. And if art provides that cliff to hang on to, I guess we can all be a little more hopeful. Uh, There's many, many questions that we need to ask, but uh, we cannot monopolize your time. (laughs) Thank you so much. It has been absolutely wonderful um, uh, having this conversation with you. And uh, we look forward to more... play of words with you <laughs> and, and and we hope for uh, for better things. So, thank you very much for your time. Appreciate uh, it. it. Thank you, uh, shash- Shashi Tharoor, ladies and gentlemen, on the Teamwork Arts podcast. Follow us on social media. It'll be nice. And uh, tell us what you think because thinking uh, should not be seen as a luxury, probably a necessity. So, uh, yeah, go for it. Uh, tell us, subscribe, whatever it is that you want to do. Just click on those buttons and uh, what's coming up next for that, uh, you'll just have to keep following us on social media. Thank you for listening. This is the Teamwork Arts podcast.